Amen. Thank you, Brother Dan. We're looking at evidence of divine inspiration. And I want to begin tonight, it's not in our notes, but in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's all turn, if you would please, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And what we're about to read is a claim the Bible makes for itself. Actually, Paul is writing to a young preacher, and Paul gives this truth. Anybody there want to read it? Go ahead and read verse 17, Dan. Okay, I appreciate you reading that. Uh, what, is it, what does that verse tell us? What does it say about God's Word? Okay, all inspired by God. And we mentioned several weeks ago, uh, it means that God breathed it out, okay? Now, again, you hear me say it often when we talk about this. It doesn't mean God breathed on something. It's not like Isaiah wrote something and said, God, how, what do you think about this one? That's not it at all. It's that God breathed the words out. And again, Dan, you just read it. It says all Scripture is given by inspiration. Uh, it's all breathed out by God, inspiration of God. And so Paul said that's why it's certainly uh, good uh, for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. What is doctrine, by the way? It's teaching, okay? So we need to get our teaching from where? From the Word of God. Now, again, as we mentioned uh, several weeks ago, that's what the Bible says about itself. Now, I think you'll agree with me. I believe that. I believe what the Bible says about, it, about itself is true, uh, number one, because it is divinely inspired, okay? Uh, but let's understand, wouldn't you agree there are non-believers who wouldn't believe that necessarily? They would say, well, that's what it says, uh, and you may believe that if you want to, but we just don't think that is true. So, again, we're, we're looking at just some evidences that this book is divinely inspired. Now, again, you and I, we take take it for at his word. Uh, and by the way, when Paul wrote this, that's enough for us. So, you know, he's writing under the inspiration. And so we know from what Paul says, it is divinely inspired. So we're looking at some evidences tonight. Uh, and, and let me ask you, well, before we leave that verse, so what do you think about that? What is that? Does it mean anything to you or any comment about that? What do you think about that? Uh, oh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, we can settle that in our hearts, okay? Now, again, we take it at face value. We believe what God says. And, of course, no matter who it is, it was inspired by God. Okay, a little bit of basic Bible questions, all right? How many books, individual books, are in the Bible, New and Old Testament? Say it loud. Okay, 66, all right. How many are in the Old Testament? 39, how many are in the New? 27, okay. Now, let me give you a little bit of a uh, help here on trivia. If you remember how many is in the Old Testament, 39, if you take three times nine, you come up with what? Twenty-seven. Now that just happened to work out that way. So thirty-nine books in the Old Testament, twenty-seven in the New Testament. Now think about this. This is the only divinely inspired 
religious book ever to exist. It is God-breathed in its origin, and it's, again, by an all-knowing and perfect God. But also, as we mentioned last week, it is human in its penmanship as God used different writing styles, different personalities and backgrounds of godly men to reveal himself, to share the gospel, and, of course, to reveal his plan of redemption. And so, again, we've looked at what the Bible says about itself, but there are so many proofs that authenticate the, this, the Bible, the Word of God, as certainly being divinely inspired of God. Now, there are several things we'll be looking at over the, over the course of our study, uh, and these include, uh, but not limited to, several things. First of all, the internal consistency of the Word of God. Think about that. We'll talk more about that later on. Uh, also, the prophecies that have been fulfilled in the Word of God. Also, archaeological uh, discoveries verify the Word of God. Now, remember, we don't need those, but they just happen to do that, all right? And then we have extra-biblical verification, but also the scientific accuracy of the Word of God. Now, I want to remind you, this is not a science book. When it speaks of science, it is accurate, okay? So those are just a few of the things uh, that give us the fact that this is a divinely inspired book and could not have been written just with the, the mind of men alone. We look at several things uh, already about evidence of divine inspiration. One thing we covered a week or two ago, the Bible is never stale. It's always fresh. It's designed to be that way. Now, again, that's if we're reading with the right attitude, if we are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, if we want to be fed from the Word of God, uh, we have to remember that it, when we do that, come in that attitude, it's always fresh to it. And no matter how much we study, no matter how many years we spend studying, will we learn it all? No, its truths are never exhausted. The third thing we began last week is how honest the biblical writers were. Uh, again, uh, they were there to tell the truth. And they told the whole truth. They told the good, the bad, and even the ugly. So the honesty of the writers of the Bible. We looked last week of the, some Old Testament examples of some lives that they, talk, they talked about. And again, they told the whole truth about it. They didn't uh, try to varnish over or gloss over even the sins of those who were to be servants of the Almighty God. So tonight, let's go to the New Testament, and let's look at some of the uh, characters there uh, we see in the New Testament. First of all, uh, the uh, the character of John the Baptist. Now, think about him. Uh, what 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 do you know about John the Baptist? What do you know about him? Okay, born about the time of Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you think, would he be the kind of guy you'd want to buy for dinner? <laughs> Probably not. Uh, wouldn't you agree he was a very, uh, although, I don't know how to put this, I guess from our, from our standpoint, our culture, we would consider him a little bit weird. Is that true? Is that fair to say that? A little different, right? I mean, what do you dress in? Exactly right. That's how he was dressed. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, he did. And that's exactly what he did because he would be certainly considered one of the last Old Testament prophets, if you will, even though he comes on the scene in the New Testament. Uh, what about his diet? <laughs> yeah, can you imagine that? Uh, I wonder if you put ketchup on them locusts or not. I don't know. Something to kill the taste. But, but yeah, a little different. But again, uh, Marvin, I go back to what you said. That's probably a diet of a prophet, you know, uh, and and certain they would eat that back in those days and time. But it, it's interesting. Beside him, besides him being different than we would consider normal, as far as in the eyes of God, was he important? Very, very important. And Dan, you mentioned he was born about the same time as Jesus, six months earlier. But his birth was also a miraculous birth. Yeah, absolutely. Even though his daddy didn't believe it at first. Uh, now, it wasn't, he, he wasn't virgin born, not that, but his parents were past childbearing age. And, and so, again, uh, without a miraculous intervention, he would not have been born. But also, the Bible tells us that he was filled from the Spirit even from his mother's womb. Who else, and we don't, other than Jesus, of course, uh, who else would read it about that, that way? No one. Luke one fifteen, for example. So I think it's clear that, first of all, um, he would be a Nazarite from birth. And if you go to the book of Numbers and read about a Nazarite there. But also he was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Now, Marvin, you mentioned he was like an Old Testament prophet. He was. But it's also interesting. John the Baptist was also the subject of Old Testament prophecy. Now, and again... Uh, the office that John the Baptist filled, or John the Baptizer, uh, was the most honorable office anyone from Abraham's lineage occupied. Malachi 3.1. Thank you, Jason. Now, when we said that he was the most honorable ever to fill a position than any of the Old Testament prophets. For example, uh, let's look at Isaiah. He prophesied about the coming of Jesus. But what would make Isaiah different from John the Baptist? What was John able to do? What was he able to see? He saw the Messiah. He was the forerunner. He was the one the Bible prophesied would prepare the way for the Messiah. He, go ahead. Yes. 
Well, you know, the, the, the disciples talking about his return. So, my Lord, the Bible said, I'm paraphrasing that before you come, Elijah has to appear. And Jesus said he's here now. Now, again, he's the type of Elijah, okay? He, he's the type of Elijah. So, in a very prominent position in the work of God. Also, now think about this. He also had the honor of baptizing who? Can you imagine that? Baptizing your own Redeemer? That blows my mind. But he even baptized Jesus Christ. Okay, knowing what we know about him from the eyes of God, how special he was, the position he held as the forerunner of Christ, the very one that Jesus asked him to baptize him, if you will. So think about that. If this book was written only by men without inspiration, where would they put John on the totem pole? At the top. At the top. The most distinguished of the Lord's followers. And maybe their idea would have been from man's, from human standpoint, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and John the Baptist. Because he was that well thought of by God. Jesus said there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist. None. So very preeminent. That's not what we find. That's not what these writers say. The fact of the matter, well, let me ask a question. How many conversations, word-for-word conversations, are partial conversations between Jesus and John the Baptist do we read in the Scripture? Take two away from that, please. Now, again, all John says, you know, the, when he asked him to baptize, that's about it. But we don't see any long discourses between the two. It, it's simply not there. And by the way, for the most part, when we talk of the New Testament story, John is neglected. Except for a few tidbits here and there. We also read of a time when he was a doubter. The time he was put in prison, and because of a situation, decided to send a message to Jesus to ask the question whether or not he was really the Messiah. Luke chapter 7, verse 20. So what's John asking here? Yeah, are you the one?
Well, sure. I mean, that's certainly not what he expected, where he expected to be. And so there was doubt to come up. Are you the one? Or do we need to look for someone else? Now think about this. If this had just been written by men, I'm not sure they would have included this part of his lapse in faith. I mean, you know, John, no greater prophet, but he did have this lapse of faith. And I understand that, okay? And certainly that's totally opposed to the dictates of human wisdom. Uh, I mean, how in the world would you ever point out the doubt of the imminent forerunner of the Messiah? And that's hard to comprehend. I mean, we could think of a lot of people, but not John the Baptist. But the fact of the matter, did he do it? Yes. And the, the honesty of the New Testament writers included it in the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, I, I didn't read a, a lot of about this, but I, from what I did read, uh, there are a lot of theologians, or some theologians, who try to explain this away uh, by saying it wasn't really John that doubted, that he, he didn't ask that question for himself, uh, but he asked it for his disciples, that they would really realize that he is a Messiah, uh, even though things are not going well for John right now. Uh, and they try to explain it away uh, with that. But also understand the way Jesus replied to this is very clear. It wasn't just for John's disciples. It was John's own heart that was bothered with some doubt about who Jesus was. Matthew 11, look at verses 4 through 6. Matthew 11, verses 4 through 6. Okay, thank you, Jason. So when Jesus sends him back, he says, go and tell who? Tell John. He's the one who has doubts. He's the one who is struggling right now. He's the one who needs the reassurance that this is indeed the Messiah. And another, to me, another indication that there's, that just a human mind could have invented the character of John the Baptist. And the fact of the matter that those who were writing his biography, if you want to use that word there, they were faithful uh, to tell the whole story. So that tells me, uh, again, there's something other than their own mind motivating them to include things like this, even in the story of John the Baptizer. Again, another evidence this is the Word of God. But also notice the treatment of Christ uh, in the in the New Testament. <clears throat> uh, think about well, how did they treat him for the most part? In it? How did they treat him? Say it again, Dan. Okay. Why would you say that? Yeah, they rejected him. Now keep keep this in mind. For about 2,000 years, all of Israel's hopes 
centered on the coming of the Messiah. Their hearts were longing for him. The height of every Jewish woman's ambition was that she might be the one that God would choose to have the honor of being the mother of the promised seed. That was the longing of every Jewish woman's heart. And for centuries, those pious Jews, every pious Hebrew, they looked and they longed for the day when Christ would appear, the one who would occupy the throne of David and rule and reign in righteousness. Now, they were looking for a king, yes. Is Jesus a king? Yes, but not yet at that time. But when he appeared, think about how they treated him, Dan. You mentioned it already. The bottom line, he was despised for the most part. And for the most part, he was rejected of man. Isaiah 53, verse 3. Wow. What's that tell you? Yeah, who will? And and Dan, you're right. John one eleven is talking about those who were his blood kinsmen, the Jews. He was Jews, right? And They hated him. And they really hated him without a cause. John 15, verse 25. Psalm 69, verse 4. Where Psalm 69 verse 4 is a prophecy about Jesus. But it's interesting. John says, and again, speaking about the fulfillment of Psalm 69 4, John says they hated Jesus without a cause. Now let me, uh, let me stop here for a moment. Uh, would you agree that Jesus was of Jewish lineage? Yes. Let me go to Matthew 1. We see the, the lineage there. A lot of detail. I just read it this past week in my Bible reading. So, Jewish lineage. And he came to what people? To the Jews. His own nation. And he ministered among the Jews. In grace. He blessed them. And yet. 
when the decision came, what to do with him at the end before he died, what did they cry out? Crucify him. John 19, look at verse 14 and 15. Now think about this. Those who were telling the story are Jewish writers. And they're the ones narrating this awful tragedy committed by their fellow countrymen. And so the Jewish people were guilty of this. So we've got Jewish writers recording, telling the story about this awful crime of the Jewish nation against, now hear me, not somebody else's Messiah, but who's Messiah? Yeah, their Messiah. And as we read the accounts of this, and when the Bible speaks in the New Testament of their, of their guilt, you won't see a, an effort to conceal how serious their wickedness was. The fact of the matter, they don't try to gloss over it or make excuses for it. They denounce it. They condemn it. And I want to tell you in very strong words. In fact, the New Testament plainly charges Israel that you have taken with wicked hands and you've slain the Lord of glory. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Now, Peter is preaching there in Acts chapter 2. Is he pretty plain in what he's saying? And what's he telling them? What's he saying to them in so many words? You what? You're guilty. You have committed an atrocious crime. You have killed the Messiah. In 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, Paul is writing. Look what it says. Wow. Now think about this, folks. What we're seeing here and what we're reading is an honest, impartial recital of Israel's worst sin. Would you agree? Of all the sins, all the idolatry in the Old Testament, all those things, rebellion against God, 
This is their crowning sin. And I want to tell you, if just mere men wrote that on their own without God inspiring them, I think the story would have been slanted a different direction. So that's the life of Christ. But what about after the resurrection? Now think about this. Jesus began with 12 disciples. One was of the devil. Did that surprise Jesus? No, he knew it from the beginning. But after he's, his death and resurrection, actually before that, he had commissioned them to take the gospel where? The world. To the world. So my question is, for the most part, what had the world done with Jesus? Kill him. They treated him bad. Once in the uh, life of Jesus, he was on the way back to Jerusalem for the last time before the crucifixion. And... Uh, They're coming through Samaria. And one of the cities said, nope, not coming through here. If you're going to travel south, you're going to go around us. You remember what the disciples said to Jesus? How about we call some fire and brimstone down from heaven? And do what? Annihilate these suckers. That's my version of it, Okay. They treated us bad. Guess what? We're going to treat them bad. But even after the way the world treated Christ, he commissioned these disciples, these apostles, to take a message to the world. And what amazes me, it was not a curse called down on their heads. But thank God it was a proclamation of grace. Think about that. Not retribution. Not you did it to me and I'll pay you back. It was a message of good news. A message of glad tidings. And Jesus commissioned the disciples to go and preach forgiveness to all men. Now, i got to tell you, I wouldn't have wanted that myself. I'd have wanted it like the disciple did, just call down some fire and brimstone. Let's take care of these people now. Let's show them what for. Let's show them who's boss. Luke chapter 2, look at verse 10. Now, I realize that this is not after the resurrection. This is the angel speaking to Mary. And um, he says, I bring you good news. I bring you great news. And it's for who? For everyone. 
My question would be, has that changed? No. Even after the way they treated him, after the resurrection, there was still great news going out to the world. Acts 13, verse 38. Again, folks, there's no way just human wisdom would have written like that. God was, now certainly he was angry with the Jews, and certainly they suffered uh, uh, overtaken and uh, destruction of Jerusalem and the temple because they rejected the Savior. But he still commissioned these apostles to go out and preach the gospel of good news, the gospel of grace. No, he didn't pour out a curse or a retribution He wanted people to be forgiven. It had to come from God. But also, remember how they treated the apostles. Again, they were commissioned to carry the gospel to the lost. And uh, again, God, Christ, gave the apostles uh, the power uh, to heal sick people, uh, to cast out demons, uh, even to raise the dead. In fact, they went about doing good. And we would think that surely a ministry like that would be well welcomed. I mean, why not? But yet what happened? Were they appreciated? No. Not at all. In fact, of course, Jesus said they hated me. Guess what? They're going to hate you. And they did. They even hated the apostles. And so they were despised. They were rejected. They were hated. They were persecuted. Uh, They were treated badly. They were put in prison. And most died a shameful death. Now, again, all we have is tradition to go by and church history. Uh, But as far as I know, of the original apostles, only John died a natural death. The rest were martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, and we think about how Peter was the apostle mainly to the Jews and the apostle Paul to the Gentiles. So the Jews who were bigoted, uh, they had their hands in it. They they didn't receive them well. Uh, Even the Greeks who were cultured, uh, they didn't receive them well. And so both groups... Jew and Gentile alike persecuted even the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have these men who came to preach the good news of forgiveness. These men who came and brought blessing, they were cursed. They were rejected. And their whole goal was to emancipate uh, men from the, uh, from the grip of sin and from the grip of Satan. And yet they themselves were often captured, tortured, put into prison, and again... Most of them were died, were killed as a mortar. They healed the sick, they raised the dead, and yet they were treated horribly, not just by the Jews, but also by the Greeks. So when we think about the honesty of both the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers, it is very clear this book wasn't invented just by a human mind. It simply would not have been that way. 
and it's clear and evident from how honest the writers are. And they were faithful to portray, portray uh, the whole story. Uh, even how, no matter who they're writing about, the carnal mind, you know, is in rebellion against God. And here's the thing is this. They could not have written this on their own unless they had been moved by the Holy Spirit. It's just not a story man would come up with. Second Peter, I'm sorry, yeah, Second Peter chapter 1, look at verse 21. Thank you, Dan. We saw earlier from Paul's letter to Timothy about the Word of God being inspired. Now we have Peter uh, speaking about prophecy, the Old Testament. Uh, said you need to realize uh, this wasn't just what man came up with. They wrote under what direction? Under whose direction? Yeah, they were moved by God to pen what they wrote. Now, again, God used different authors uh, from different backgrounds, from different uh, cultures, if you will. I mean, Jewish culture, but different areas of the world over, you know, but different personalities. And God did use that. But the word they wrote, they were moved along by the Spirit of God. So, again, another claim uh, the Bible makes. So far, any question or comment about this so far? Any question or comment? Okay, another evidence of uh, divine inspiration is the internal consistency of the Word of God. Now think about this. We've already talked about the fact that there were 66 books, 39 in the Old, 27 in the New Testament. But the Bible, if you go uh, from when it was first written back to Genesis to Revelation, it was written over a period of 1,500 years. I think about that. And written by 40 different authors who lived on three continents. They spoke three different languages. They were diverse in their educational background. Diverse in your cultural background. And yet, as you read the scripture, it comes out to be one cohesive story from Genesis to Revelation. Now, folks, think about that. If this book was written by man on his own, what are the chances of that happening that way? None. It can't. It simply can't. Because all 66 books from Genesis to Revelation are perfectly in harmony. And they are consistent in their message. And especially when it comes to answering the essential questions of life. And my friend, no other book answers those questions like this book does. And the consistent is clear. Throughout all the word of God. And some of the questions it deals with is, where do we come from? Do people deal with that today? Yeah. Why are we here? Think about that. 
The Bible answers that. Do we have a purpose? The Bible is clear about that. Does God exist? Does the Bible tell you about that? Sure. <laughs> and if he does, what is he like? If you want to know what God's like, right here it is. We find it in the Word of God. Why is there suffering? Why is there evil and trouble in our world? The Bible deals with that. Is there life after death? Guess what book tells you about that? The Bible does. Well, if there is, where do we go? Does the Bible tell you about that? What about the why? The Bible answers that question. Now think about it. These are essential questions about life. Questions that almost everybody who's ever lived have asked. And the Bible is consistent on the answers to that question. Now remember, 40 different authors over a 1,500 year span, and they're consistent in those answers. Suppose today we would get a group of 20 people from the same generation with similar backgrounds and we ask them those crucial questions. How many answers will we get? (laughs) Yeah, however people we have. Their response would be diverse, but not so in the Word of God. We have 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years, and their, the content and their teachings are coherent and congruent, and they fit together with a logical framework. And my friend, man could never do that on his own. And that fact alone is one powerful evidence that this book has a divine origin. It is indeed God-breathed. But another proof, and we, we mentioned it earlier, is prophetic fulfillment. What do I mean by that? Exactly, okay. Now, think about this. We see in the Scriptures a fulfillment of predictive events, a fulfillment of things and occurrences that are foretold in the Scripture. And like you said, Dan, we see them being fulfilled, and that is another strong evidence that the Bible is divinely inspired. Now, if you are prophesying about something, you're prophesying about something going to happen when? Say it again. In the future. Now, I realize the biblical term for a prophet can mean either foretelling, proclaiming God's word, or, I'm sorry, foretelling, prophesying ahead of what's going to happen ahead, 
are just foretelling, preaching God's Word. But we're talking about prophecy when you're foretelling something going to happen years later. Now, I haven't read all the other religious books, but one writer said this. He said, there is no other religious book, past, present, or future, containing even one verifiable prophecy. Do you find that amazing? It is to me. According to what this writer says, there is no other religious book, past, present, what he says, future, containing even one verifiable, fulfilled prophecy. Not one. And yet, the Scriptures, our Bible, contains hundreds of precise and detailed prophecies about people, about places, about incidents, and a lot of those have already been fulfilled. Now again, we believe the Bible, and there are many that have been fulfilled. What about the rest of them? They will be fulfilled. Now, uh, according to the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, when the Bible was written, approximately 27% of the contents are prophetic. 27% of the Bible is about prophecy. So God inspired the writers of Scripture to record hundreds of, of future occurrences in advance. And the percentage is staggering because over 25% of this Bible is prophecy. Think that about that. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah the one who would turn people from their sins. And every one, all 300 of those prophecies about Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now the last Old Testament prophet, if you don't count John the Baptist, was Malachi. And Jesus was born 400 years after Malachi. About 700 to 750 years before Isaiah wrote to us, a son is given, a child is born. All right, let's give me, how much time I got left, Jason? Oh, this ain't Sunday school, I don't care. <laughs> I forgot about that. This guy's name is Peter W. Stoner. He wrote a book, Science Speaks. And in that book, he uses the science of probability. And using this science of probability, he calculated 
the likelihood of one person fulfilling eight prophecies. Now remember, Jesus fulfilled 300. He determines that the likelihood of one person fulfilling eight prophecies is one in ten to the seventeenth power. And that's one in one hundred quadrillions. That's how much money Rick's got. None of the reference know what a quadrillion is. Now think about that. A quadrillion is one followed by 15 zeros. One in 100 quadrillion. That one person will fulfill eight prophecies. He gives an example to help better understand, maybe. He said it'd be like taking the state of Texas, the entire state, and filling it two feet deep with silver dollars. I'd like to have them silver dollars, wouldn't you? And he said you take one of the silver dollars and you put a red X on it. And then you take a big paddle and you stir it. Mix it up. And then you have a blindfolded individual go anywhere in the state and choose one coin. And it has to be that marked silver dollar. And again, according to the science of probability, that would be one in 100 quadrillion chance of success. Which means what? <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. And so using that science of probability, that tells us that's the same probability that Old Testament prophets would have eight prophecies right about one person. But they had 300 right about Jesus. 300 right about Jesus. Okay. Because the probability is so unlikely, how do they pull it off then? How could he be right? Come on. Because God told them. They were inspired by God. This guy who wrote that book on science speak also went a step farther. And he calculated the likelihood of one person fulfilling 16 prophecies. And he said that would be uh, 1 in 10 to the 45th power. 10 with 45 zeros after it. Again, what's the probability on your own? It's just not there. 
Folks, and, and, and we, we got more to go, okay? As we're looking at evidence of God's Word being inspired. There's no way those men could be that accurate. Now, again, every prophecy about the coming of Christ the first time has come true. All 300 references to Christ. Every one of them. And there are a lot of other prophecies that have come true as well. And again, there's some that have not, but they will. And wouldn't you agree there's no other book like it? Now, it's been years uh, since I bought one of those, what do you call them, tabloids? Uh, like, uh, I don't know, in, uh, I don't know. They're, you see them at the grocery stand a lot. Of them. I, haven't, I haven't really looked for a year, but usually around the first of the year or maybe December, you start uh, seeing with headlines about some kind of uh, modern-day prophet. Here's what's going to happen in 2024. Not in, I haven't looked at one this year, uh, but uh, normally at the end of the year, what do you find out about those prophecies? Didn't happen. Didn't happen, Okay. Uh, of course, they, I, don't know, I don't know that they claim to be of God or not, but the Old Testament prophets were of God. And we have proof of divine inspiration, right? It couldn't happen without God. All right, let's stop there for tonight, and let's go uh, to the Lord in prayer.